welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for uh, making time in your schedule. It will be well worth your time. Lee Strobel is my guest. He's on our studio line. He'll be coming on the program in just a minute. And I was reading uh, from an author from the 13th century. I can't think of his name right now, but he was talking about the four sources of peace. And this is what it said. I want to teach you the way of peace and true liberty. There are four things you must do. First, strive to do another's will rather than your own. Second, choose always to have less than more. Third, seek the lower places in life, dying to the need to be recognized and important. Fourth, always and in everything, desire that the will of God may be completely fulfilled in you. The person who tries this will be treading the frontiers of peace and rest. I think that's how they talked in the 13th century. That's pretty cool. Anyway, let me take a little break, 60 seconds, and then we'll bring on our special guest, Lee Strobel. Start each week with a word of encouragement and hope with the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional Email. When you sign up at MyFaithRadio.com, you'll receive a weekly email message featuring a short quote and a prayer to help you start your week steeped in the truth. It's an email you'll actually look forward to receiving and helps keep your mind focused on God throughout the week. Sign up for the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional email at MyFaithRadio.com under the Subscriptions tab. Welcome back to the show. You know, Colorado Christian University is announcing the launch of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics. That's going to be starting uh, next fall, and it's going to be um, pretty exciting. And Lee is my guest. He's got a pretty impressive resume. I can just make this short and say he's a really big deal. Lee, welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm a big deal. I'm on with Bill Arnold. Come on. <laughs> I love it. So you're you're now got your own Center for Evangelism and a Applied apologetics. I don't even know what applied apologetics means. Well, we actually invented that term. Okay, well, that's then I'm not as ignorant as I think I am. No, I think we we just sort of originated that. The reason was we don't really have a desire to create a bunch of ivory tower intellectuals. We really want to um, equip people who are going to be in the marketplace of ideas, who are going to be on the radio, who are going to be on the Internet, who are okay. going to be uh, actively involved in uh, not just talking about why they or what they believe, but why they believe it. So that's why we use the term applied apologetics. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happens when a Christian partners evangelism with Christian apologetics? I'm trying to put these two together. Well, I head. really think in the 21st century it's not really... Um, feasible to uh, share our faith consistently without being able to also defend it as being true. I mean, we live in an increasingly skeptical culture, and uh, as a result, people have questions, they have doubts, they have what I call spiritual sticking points in their journey toward God. And, um, you know, First Peter 3.15 tells all Christians that we ought to help our friends get past those sticking points. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think, you know, I have a good friend, Jay Warner Wallace, maybe you know him, former... I've, yeah, Jay's Coles. on the show a lot. Is he? Okay, yeah. he's a great guy. And he had a great quote, I think. He said... Um, uh, evangelism in the 21st century is spelled apologetics. Uh, so I don't think you can do one without the other these days. And uh, so we want to link them together. And, you know, I think a lot of apologetics programs 
don't do that. And, and it bothers me as a person who doesn't see himself as being an apologist. I see myself as an evangelist who uses apologetics to help reach people with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee, what would you say about the way uh, evangelism has evolved? I mean, I, I remember in the 70s, you could practically pull out of four spiritual laws and people yeah. would pray to receive Christ on the spot. Right. And it still happens today, of course, but now I think that even like the millennials, they always want to know why. Yes. They always ask the you're, why question. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think, you know, back uh, many years ago, uh, all you had to do was remind someone of what they probably already knew from Sunday school class That's growing true. up because so many people, you know, attended church as kids and, and they would respond to it. And uh, these days, people don't have that background. Um, our country is increasingly secular. They they don't have a Christian base for of their um, worldview or from their uh, life experience, and so um, people have legitimate questions. I think it's good we have questions. I think um, you know our faith is stronger when we pursue uh, our doubts and we look for answers and we find that golly, there really are good reasons to believe what we believe. Because mm-hmm. your story was that of a, a pretty solid atheist. That's right. I was a, a journalist at the Chicago Tribune. I was the legal editor. I have a background in journalism and law. And um, you put those two together, you can imagine <laughs> what kind of a skeptic you get. Yeah. You know, what kind of a jerk that you get, one way or the other. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but uh, so I, I was a skeptic. My wife was agnostic. And it was through her meeting and becoming friends with a Christian nurse who talk, took her to church and explained the gospel that she came to faith, and uh, when she told me, I thought it was like the worst news I could ever get. I first word that went through my mind was divorce. I was going to walk out. Um, but then I thought, you know, I ought to look into this. Maybe I could rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in. So I spent two years of my life using my journalism training and legal training and investigating uh, all aspects of faith, but particularly uh, the resurrection of Jesus, because I saw that as being really the, the linchpin of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And after two years of doing that, I really, one, one day on November the 8th of 1981, I sat down and I said, well, wait a minute. In light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Right. And that's when the scales sort of tipped and uh, I, I put my trust in Christ. Yeah, it sounds like, Lee, there was a, a rash of reason that came over you. That's right. Yeah, I call it. Yeah, people often have a rush of emotion when mm-hmm. they come to faith. I had what I call a rush of reason. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So um, when I think of, I asked the question about how evangelism has evolved over th- yeah. the last three decades. Maybe comment on how atheism has evolved over the last three decades. Yeah, you know, it's become much more mainstream. When I was at the Chicago Tribune back uh, many years ago, um, you didn't go around telling people you were an atheist. I mean, no. that was kind of, it was socially embarrassing. I totally. Mean, yeah, you just didn't publicize that kind of a thing. You kept it to yourself. Nowadays, it's a badge of honor almost. I it's mean, almost like you're hip. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I get a lot of parents who come up to me and say, hey, my son or daughter grew up in the church. They went off to college. They came home at Thanksgiving, and they told me they're an atheist. And the first thing I tell them is don't panic because it's socially popular to call yourself an atheist these days. And uh, they're probably not really an atheist. They're probably wrestling with some legitimate questions, and maybe we can help them find some good answers. But um, you're right. I mean, people these days, it's it's uh, considered hip. And... Um, um, a lot of people who make the claim of being an atheist 
haven't really thought it through. They're just they're just not quite there in terms of their faith, and so they say, well, the alternative to that is an atheist position, and I guess that's what I am. But the internet uh, tends to reinforce that. Um, I, uh, one famous atheist said recently, he said, uh, the only reason I continue to be an atheist is when I have my doubts about my atheism, I go over to my atheist websites and they kind of prop me up. Mm, um, yeah, give me reasons not to believe. And so I think the Internet fuels a lot of that. There's a lot of ridiculous stuff on the Internet that um, uh, people buy into. Yeah. Now, Lee, when you uh, debate an atheist, uh, do you feel like you've got the inside advantage talking to him because you've been there yourself? Well, I think it does give me some insights. I mean, I'm not a formal debater. I've moderated yeah. a lot of debates. I, I like the debates bet- be between PhDs. Of course. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I think it, it, having been an atheist gives me a little bit of a perspective that um, I understand the mindset and the emotions and the uh, intentions often of uh, non-believers and uh, in fact, my first Christian book was called Inside the Mind of Unchurched Terry and Mary, which was hmm. a book that tried to help Christians understand the thinking patterns of nonbelievers, because so many Christians in the church who were pastors and so forth grew up in the church, and they've never really been personally uh, exposed to that. Mm-hmm. And now, recently, too, I just want to mention before we go to break, um, you've got uh, a new book, The Miracles Answer Book, which is a companion to The Case for Miracles, isn't it? It is. Uh, Case for Miracles came out, uh, and is uh, this is sort of a gift book that um, you can give to a friend who maybe is interested or curious about whether God still performs miracles today. Uh, it's a result of a two-year investigation I did into the supernatural. And, and to answer that question, is God still actively involved in intervening supernaturally today? And and my conclusion after two years of talking to people on all sides of the issues, including the most famous skeptic in America, um, I came away saying, yeah, there's solid evidence that God really does intervene supernaturally. Mm-hmm. Do you have a tease you can give us from the book? Yeah, you want a, you want a, a case study? I'd love one, yeah. How much time do you have? you have a minute? Uh, two and a half minutes. Okay. Uh, Barbara Snyder. Barbara Snyder, um, uh, her case is medically documented at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, She had MS. She was on her deathbed. One lung was collapsed. The other lung was at 50%. She was virtually blind. All she could see was gray shapes. She, um, her legs were atrophied. She hadn't walked in seven years. She had a feeding tube uh, in her stomach. She had a breathing tube in her throat. Uh, She was basically given up for dead in hospice, getting ready to die. 450 people we've documented, Christians, began to pray for her because her case was talked about on a local radio station, Christian radio station in Chicago. Uh, And she hears a voice of God saying, get up, my child, and walk. And she literally pulls the tube out, the tube's out, and, and jumps out of bed. Um, she, her, her eyesight is instantly restored. Her, she would have been curled up like a pretzel, um, uh, her whole body. Uh, all of a sudden her hands unfold, her feet are flat on the floor, uh, and she's completely healed. Um, she goes to her doctor the next day, uh, who says, when I saw her walking down the corridor toward me, my first thought was, oh, she died and this is a ghost because this is medically impossible. Um, she completely and totally healed. In fact, 
even the muscle tone returned to her legs so that she could walk. She hadn't walked in seven years. Her legs were like spindles because wow. of, yeah, it's a fantastic story. In fact, the Chicago Tribune, it happened in Chicago, uh, carried an article about it, a secular newspaper, the, uh, the next day. Uh, two doctors have written books about it. They were so astounded by it. There just is no medical explanation for it. And I did extensive interviews with Barbara, and uh, we document her case in my books. Um, wonderful woman. She ended up uh, marrying a pastor, and they have a little Wesleyan church out in Fredericksburg, Virginia. That's unbelievable, Lee. Yeah, it's, 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 it is. It is unbelievable. And, yeah. You know, I didn't grow up in a charismatic tradition. I grew up in an evangelical tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I always harbored a bit of skepticism about stories of healings. But the ones I document in my book, uh, you know, there may be other cases that are fraud or that are misdiagnoses or, or placebo effect. Mm-hmm. But I got a bunch of cases. So it's, those cannot be the explanation. Yeah. Let me take a little break. Lee Strobel is my guest. Um, we're talking about his new uh, evangelism and applied apologetics school at Colorado Christian University and also his uh, latest book, The Case for Miracles, and the companion book that's along with it. We'll take a short break and be back. the show. Lee Strobel is my guest. And Lee, I'm trying to catch my breath from that last story because I know everyone who heard that story wants that to be the outcome for themselves or their loved one. Yeah. You know, um, you want another one real quick? I do. Yeah. We got lots of time. Uh, Yeah. I mean, (laughs) this one actually blows my mind as well. This is a story that um, actually occurred near where I live. I live uh, in Houston area, just north of Houston. And in First Baptist Church Brenham, uh, which is not far from here, the pastor was named Dwayne Miller. Dwayne, great guy. Dwayne um, loved to preach the Word of God. He, 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 he had a great voice. He would sing and lead worship. And, and then one day he wakes up, and he had a virus that paralyzed his vocal cords. And he could no longer speak. And his voice was like this. He said it was like I had a... I had a hand on my throat, like a oh, hand boy. gripping his throat. So over, he, he lost his pastor because he couldn't preach. He, he um, went through a, several years of, of, of just hardship. He, he saw 63 physicians over the years. In fact, one group was a symposium of voice experts in Switzerland <laughs> that he went to. And they, died, they, they examined him. They said, prognosis, your voice ain't coming back. Your vocal cords are paralyzed. So um, one day, First Baptist Houston, where he used to have a Sunday school class, uh, called him up and said, hey, Dwayne, we miss you. Um, Years ago, you used to teach us from the Bible. Could you do that just one more time? And he said, well, it's kind of annoying to listen to me. They said, yeah, yeah, we know it's hard to listen to you, but we'll put a microphone on you, and we love you. Just come give it a shot. So uh, Dwayne comes to First Baptist Church, the Sunday school class, and he opens his Bible, and he begins to, to teach. And the text that he... Uh, uh, decides to to preach from in that Sunday school class was Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 deals with the healing power of God. Mm -hmm. And so as he's speaking, and by the way, this is all recorded. They recorded his class. So if your listeners want to actually hear what happened, 
go to his website, newvoice, nuvoice.org, and you can listen to this happen. But as he's preaching on the healing power of God, God healed his voice. And you hear it on the tape come back. And you hear people gasping in wow. the audience and, and whooping and, 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 and crying. While, and, and he is stunned. He doesn't know what to say. He says, I'm at a loss for words. But he said it was like the hand came off of his throat. His voice was completely healed. Uh, he goes to his physician the next day, and his physician says, um, look, even if I could explain how you got your voice back by coincidence, which I can't, he said, I could never explain what happened to the scar tissue. The scar tissue was totally healed. And he said, your voice is like a pristine voice of a baby, mm. your vocal cords. And uh, today he's a pastor again. He's got a church near Dallas. And uh, he's also, get this, he's got a daily radio show in Dallas using his voice to talk about the God who heals. So uh, that's a fantastic um, example. What I love about it is people can go listen themselves and you can say for the rest of your life, I witnessed a miracle yeah. <laughs> because you will listen to it and hear him and hear the shock in his voice and hear his voice actually return. It's amazing. Yeah, Lee, I was excited about every part of that story, except when you said he has his daily radio show because I, <laughs> I don't need any more competition. <laughs> I hope it's not I hope it's not in the same time as yours. Yeah, so <laughs> let, let's get back to the uh, Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism yeah. and Applied Apologetics. I'm just so curious about this. Talk about some of the courses that are going to be offered there and what makes them different or unique. Well, I think what's unique about it is this wedding of evangelism and apologetics, and apologetics that is for everyday use and use in the marketplace of ideas. So we'll have courses, for instance, uh, we have a a six-stage strategy for churches to increase their evangelistic effectiveness. Um, It's proven. We've had PhDs study it and show that it works because it's biblical. And um, so we want to teach that six-stage process to pastors so that they can elevate the uh, evangelistic temperature of their local congregation. Um, we're gonna, what we want to do also is we want to train point leaders, evangelism uh, directors for local churches. Um, at some churches, they'll be full-time, at some part-time, at some just uh, volunteers. But we believe every church needs someone under the direction of the senior pastor who is trained not to do the evangelism on behalf of the church, but to equip and motivate and train and encourage and enable the entire congregation to share their faith. And uh, so we'll have courses on that so that if someone says, I I feel like this is a passion area of mine, I would love to be involved in a local church where I could lead that effort under the direction of the senior pastor. Uh, Right now, if you pick up the phone and call a typical church and say, who's your senior pastor, they'll tell you. If you say, who's your um, worship leader, they'll tell you. If they say, who's your Sunday school, um, your, your children's pastor, they'll tell you. But if you say, who's in charge of evangelism, uh, well, I don't know. What do you mean by that? They, they don't know. And the truth is nothing gets done in church unless there's a name assigned to it. And so we want to train those people, and then we can bring them together uh, once a year at a conference at our uh, school, Colorado Christian University in Denver, uh, for further training and equipping and motivation, and then send them back out. We really believe we can uh, elevate the evangelistic effectiveness of churches all over the country by doing that. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the initiatives we're working on. Yeah. So, Lee, how did you end up partnering with Colorado Christian University? 
Uh, you know, that's a great question. Uh, I've been involved with them, golly, going back more than 10 years. The former president was William Armstrong. He was a United States senator from Colorado. He went to the Senate in Washington. And one day he was in the Senate dining room and a uh, a dentist who was part of um, Campus Crusade shared Jesus with him. He came to faith, had a radical conversion, and uh, became an evangelist. I mean, just loved to share his faith. And so when he became president of Colorado Christian, this is several years ago, before he died, he literally shut down the entire university for three days. And he said, during those three days, I'm going to have Lee Strobel and Mark Middleberg come in. We're going to train every student, every faculty member, every um, uh, staff person on how to naturally and effectively share their faith. I mean, that's, that's radical, to shut down a university, to train everybody in personal evangelism. So they've got evangelism in their DNA. And then mm-hmm. when he died, the new president is Don Sweeting, and the last name you may recognize, because George Sweeting, his dad, was a, a leading evangelical uh, educator and pastor at Moody Church in Chicago for many years. Yeah, that's... Awesome. And then when do classes start? Is it next fall? Yeah, we'll, we'll kick it off next fall. It'll all be online. Uh, so anybody okay. anywhere can take these courses um, and um, either get a certificate or an undergraduate degree. We'll have a master's degree as well. Uh-huh. And uh, so we're thrilled with it. We're, we've got 12 PhDs who are working with us to develop these courses. We're actually spending um, almost three times as much that a typical university spends on producing its online course because we're going to be state-of-the-art. Um, we have augmented reality elements to it. It's going to be awesome. So yeah. we're really thrilled. I by don't it. know what that means, but it sounds really cool. <laughs> I know it does. Augmented it? reality moments. I know. I know. There's actually a team in Israel who we brought over to incorporate that into our courses, and it's literally things, it's almost like a hologram. Where where you you know things kind of come alive on your desk. It's that's just, awesome. It's staggering. Yeah. yeah, Lee, that's really exciting. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about th- that and also your book and the case for miracles. It's just really nice talking to you. Well, thanks. Great talking to you. I sure appreciate it, Bill. Thanks so much. Lee Strobel has been my guest, and the latest book we've been chatting about is called The Case for Miracles. And you can uh, of course go online to leestrobel.com or any place you go buy books. You can go check it out. And also his uh, Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. That's coming next fall. We'll take a little break and we'll be back with Pastor Bob Merritt in just a little bit. the show, I'm absolutely delighted to be uh, talking to Pastor Bob Merritt. He's the senior pastor of Eagleburg Church in the Twin Cities. And if you know anything about the Twin Cities, you'll know that is a big church. And not only is it big in Minnesota, it's one of the 10 largest churches in America. He's the author of Get Wise and Seven Simple Choices, uh, but he's also got a new book out called Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. And I love this concept that uh, you can come to a new life in Christ, yet your new life still feels 
little bit like your old life. So that that's no fun. And uh, we're going to learn more about that. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Bill. So it's really an honor to be with you guys and, and your listeners today. So yeah, awesome. I'm completely intrigued with this uh, book and this idea that so many people feel this way, Bob. You, you get become a, a new creation in Christ, yet there's big chunks of your life that still feel like your old life. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I wrote it. Uh, it's really about my own struggle. Um, I grew up in a pastor's home, so I was around church and Christianity and the Bible all my life. Eventually became a pastor, but, you know, all through my teen years, 20s, 30s, uh, I would hear this message that when you become a Christian, the old life is gone, the new has come, everything changes. Well, then what's wrong with me, I would think, and just a lot of guilt and confusion uh, all, all through growing up, and then here, even a pastor here at this church, you know, we, 10 years into Eagle Brook, I, you know, we were growing like crazy and uh, life kind of overtook me. And uh, I talk in this book about my own signature sin, Bill, and it's verbal misconduct. The very thing that God uses greatly in my life is also something that I struggle with in saying hurtful things to people, um, saying inappropriate things. And so that, that's kind of my signature sin, and that, that began to bubble up about 10 years in, and we, I was running so fast and just causing all kinds of havoc on staff, but I wasn't seeing it. And so the church board and their wisdom stepped in and said, you need a year to look at this. So I went through a year-long counseling session and 225 pages of feedback, what's good about Bob, what's bad about Bob, and I was confronted with this issue, this sinful pattern in my life. Here I am, a quote-unquote successful pastor of a large church. Why am I still struggling with this this problem? And so it really grows out of that, my own struggle with what does it mean that the old life is gone? Well, the old life is still there in many ways for me. Mm-hmm. Bob, what was triggering uh, from the old life that was being manifest in the new life? You know, when you talk about verbal did you say abuse? Was that the word you used? Verbal, verbal abuse? misconduct. Verbal is misconduct. How I say it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was there something from your past? Were you uh, feeling that you were going on the offensive because of criticism that you'd receive, or what would be prompting this um, this response? Yeah, it's hard to say. I, you know, one of the things I talk about in our, in this book uh, is that oftentimes your greatest strength there's a corresponding corresponding weakness. Sometimes it's a sin issue. Sometimes it's a weakness. So, again, what God used used greatly in my life, speaking, teaching, uh, if you misuse that verbal skill, the damage that can cause is immense. And so uh, oftentimes if, if you're wondering about, well, what sin do I struggle with, look, look for one of your strengths. And oftentimes there's a, there's a hidden weakness that maybe you haven't confronted. But with me, I was just under a tremendous amount of stress, and my I was going so fast, uh, trying to lead, trying to teach, uh, beginning to get, get asked to do other things outside of my role here, and I just my life was unmanageable. And when you're under stress, Bill, the ugly the ugly parts of your life tend to bubble up more more uh, frequently, and that's what happened with me. I love your candidness and honesty, Bob, because. Uh... You know, obviously, you were feeling pressure, and um, there were a lot of demands. And if I got a 225-page uh, book of what's wrong with me, I wouldn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
was it was awful. I mean, it, it was awful and, and wonderful both at the same time. It was really the first time I'd ever been confronted with, you know, the darkness, the dark pieces in my life. Never gone through professional counseling, never had that kind of, uh, you know, digging around in my life. And I was forced into it. And what, you know, what what forced part of what forced me into that was uh, just the pain that I was causing other people. And now now there's pain in my life as well. Uh, the stress, uh, this confrontation, uh, I was actually, the board said, you either, you either get this taken care of, or you're no longer going to be the pastor of this church. It was that, it was that severe. We call that the direct approach. <laughs> right. It's either you get this taken care right. of or you're done. Right. And so all kinds of, so pain is often, my point is pain is often a signal that something's wrong. Yeah. And that's what happened with me. I'm wondering, Bob, were you feeling resentment towards people that you were around every day, thinking that they were having these feelings oh. towards you? Oh, sure. I okay. mean, it's everybody else's problem but mine. You know, staff, you, you get to work, do your job, quit coming to me with your issues. I mean, just, and then if they'd complain about my behavior, you know, well, that's your problem. And so again, when you're, when you're, when you're not aware and to become self-aware of your sin is so so important. To be honest with it, to be humble enough to look at it. Mm-hmm. I was just I was just not aware, uh, just terrible, you know, unawareness of my sin. So, yeah, I would I'd project. I would say, well, they're the they're the problem. Everybody else is the problem. You know, you're criticizing me, but you're you're really the issue. You're you're the jerk here in the situation, not me. <laughs> yeah. Now, in chapter five, when you were talking about your signature sins, I, I love the fact that you quote Proverbs eighteen twenty one that say the power, uh, the tongue has the power of life and death, and we all know that to be true. Um, so, what were you learning in this year of thinking about it that had you change how you acted? Well. Um... It was interesting because 10 years after that, I went through another round with the same counselor, Fred. And, and what I learned was uh, verbal misconduct was, was kind of the exterior issue to deeper issues. And so I was able to kind of, once I recognized that verbal misconduct's a problem, saying hurtful things, harsh things was a problem, I was able to at least, oh, I did it again. I could recognize that. I could apologize and and, and try to at least uh, do whatever I could not to do that. But then it began to manifest itself again a few years later, and the board said, hey, are you willing to go another round with this counselor, Fred? And I thought, I said, well, okay. And then, But inside I thought, you got to be kidding me. I thought I was done with that. And the, the truth is, Bill, you're never really done with sin. Mm-hmm. We, we, still, we still struggle. And so what I began to discover was be, what was behind this verbal problem, what was be, behind this uh, harshness inside of me. And, and we began to dig at my upbringing, and my dad was really a black and white kind of a guy. He was a good guy, but not a lot of love. He was hard on himself, and therefore he was hard on others. Well, guess what? I'm hard on myself. And then I tend to be hard on others. I'm not very compassionate, very forgiving. And I really had to go back and, you know, Bible talks about that we're forgiven in Christ. I I really had to learn how to forgive myself because if I don't forgive myself, 
I have a hard time extending forgiveness to other people. Mm-hmm. And if I don't forgive other people, I'm just, I'm just kind of harsh. I'm not compassionate. So we just began to dig at my upbringing and, and other things. That's if, when you ask, what did I learn? Oftentimes the surface stuff, there's deeper stuff below it. Um, and that, that takes some digging. I'm wondering what it was like uh, when you would come home and try to process some of this with your wife. Was she uh, nodding in agreement with some of this? Was she saying, <laughs> <laughs> was she saying, okay, they have a point or, you know, what kind of, how were you processing, processing this at home? Or maybe that's too personal. No, I didn't, no, that's fair. I, uh, the first round, 10 years in, when I had this 225 page pages of feedback, I mean, she was giving part of the feedback <laughs> and my yeah. kids too. And my kids, I remember my son, 15 years old, when they interviewed him, Fred's team interviewed everybody, all my friends, my family members Hey, what's good about your dad? What's bad about your dad? And I'll never forget this statement that I read was read back to me over a two day lockdown. My dad's always angry. It's from my 15-year-old son. Mm. And I'll never forget that moment. It broke me. It just it, it broke my spirit that this is something that my son is. And I, I wasn't even seeing it until it was read back to me from my own son. And my wife had a few things to say as well. So they were all in. I mean, they weren't beating up on me. They were, they were for me. But they were the recipients. My family, your family is often the recipients of your harshest uh, realities. And so I just, I regret that, but I'm also very thankful that I was able to turn that around. And this day, I mean, I think we have a, a tremendous, there's a tremendous amount of love in our family. Mm-hmm. Did your 15 year old son get a uh, 50% reduction in allowance the following week? <laughs> well, first of all, we don't believe in allowances. <laughs> I'm sorry. Our kids, our kids learn how to work at an early age. And I think it, it did them and served them well. Yeah. All right, uh, Bob, this is uh, so fascinating that, A, you're going to be so uh, honest about all this because this points to to the fact that there are so many listening right now that go, oh, boy, this is a pastor talking, and I'm I'm pretty much in that same vehicle. What do I do? Yeah, well. I mean, besides uh, buying the book. Yeah, well, that would be a good start, but, again— you know, for me, it, it, there's there's a couple things I'd say. It starts with being humble enough to say, okay, I'm human. That means I sin. The Bible says we all sin. So will I be humble enough, courageous enough to uh, look at that? And honesty, will I be honest with, with the real the facts? So sometimes you need help. You know, you need a professional, you need some, a, a good friend to help you. You know, a good question could ask a friend that you're a trusted friend. Hey, if, if I could change, if, if you would want me to change something about me, what would it be? I mean, what a, what a bold question to ask your friend or your spouse or your son or daughter. What's, you know, if there's something that bothers you in my life, what, what would you say that would be? And I'll tell you what, that takes courage. But wouldn't you want to know? what your offensive behaviors are, what, what's pushing people away, what's offending people, what causes pain, what causes loss. Wouldn't you rather know what that is instead of just keep on doing that? And so it really begins with, you know, being honest, humble. And then the third thing I'd say is when you discover what that is, what step are you going to take 
to begin to try to overcome that. You got to do something. I mean, you know, we pray about it, and I believe in prayer, obviously. But you know, what what are you going to do now this week? What are you going to work on? And you know, mark it down because it takes a do to get something done. Oh, good point. And wouldn't you agree that we all have at least three or four blind spots? So when we approach someone and say, you know, what am I? What would you like to see me change? Maybe it's it's as simple as uh, I don't. I don't see everything about me. So what are, what are my blind spots? Right. And that the very nature of that word blind spot means we're blind to it. Yeah, exactly. We don't, we, we can't see, I can't see the back of my head. And oftentimes I cut my own hair, by the way, <laughs> oftentimes I, I, I miss spots way back here and I can't see it, but everybody else can see it. Yeah. Um, sometimes my wife will say, man, you missed a whole spot back. <laughs> so, that's what a blind spot is. You just you don't see it. So you need somebody else to help you help you see that. Yeah. Are you using uh, clippers or a floby? What do you got? You know, I'm you know I don't have a lot of hair, so I've I've gone to the just the buzz and you know okay. very cheap cheap way. I just buzz away and. <laughs> oh. All right, Bob. Let me take a little break. I'm talking to Bob Merritt, he's written a great book called "Done with That: Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life." We'll take a short break and be right back. Back to the show. I have Bob Merritt on our studio line. He's written a book uh, that we're talking about today called Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. And Bob, as I'm just paging through your book and going back through some of the chapters I've looked at, in chapter 9, you talk about the battle between the spirit of Jesus and our sinful nature. Um, and you, you lay out this really nice little framework uh, where we can have a less destructive hold on life if we have less arguing with your spouse over petty stuff, less anger over all the wrongs people seem to inflict on you, less obsession over your body shape or bank account, less anxiety over the things you can't control. You've really done a beautiful job of condensing and putting into perspective some pretty important things. Yeah, so, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that we as Christians— those of us who are in Christ, who have put our faith in Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence inside us. It's an amazing truth, amazing reality. But the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that same Spirit and that same power resides inside of us. But the Bible also says, Romans 6 and 8, that we have a sinful human nature that is still there. And the Bible says that there's this conflict going on inside believers between God's spirit and this sinful human nature that pulls us towards sin. And, you know, the the question is, uh, who's going to win? And so this battle is constantly going on. And and how do I, how do I make sure that, the battle uh, over sin and death is what the Bible calls it, you know, sexual morality, lustful thoughts, anger, greed, uh, those kinds of things. That's, the, those, those, that's what the sinful nature produces versus the Spirit of God who produces love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control, relational wholeness. You know, what's going to win the day 
and how do how do I win this battle is really the question. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, exactly. Now, Bob, when I think about some of what you were dealing with at, at your church job, and you mm-hmm. were, I think, delegating responsibility and assuming people would do their job well, um, you know, and that yet you were being criticized, if I have this correct, was were you feeling some, uh, when you look back, a little bit of uh, opposition by the enemy? I mean, you're growing a huge church. Yeah, we underestimate it. The Bible says that there is an enemy. Uh, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's every single day. Mm-hmm. And so this enemy wants to destroy you, destroy me, destroy every believer, every person, doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. So we, we do have an enemy. We, we, that's why Ephesians says, you know, put on the whole armor of God. Take up the shield of faith. Love that statement. Take up the shield of faith that extinguishes all, every single one of the flaming arrows that Satan wants to throw at you. So it's constant. Um, I think we're oftentimes unaware of it. Uh, these days, I'm praying a prayer every single day. My wife is too. Uh, God, a prayer protection, protect us from uh, the attacks of Satan. Protect our kids. Protect our grandkids. Uh, don't allow him to, uh, uh, you know, harm us in any way. Don't allow him to tempt us. Don't allow him to create conflict in our family or in our staff and our church. We pray this every single day because he is an enemy who still has power. And I think a lot of people underestimate it. I don't look for a demon under every bush, but I'm very much aware these days, Bill, that uh, we do. And just take a look at American culture. I mean, it's, it's unraveling at the seams, but we do have, we do have the answer there. There's a power that, that has overcome the evil one. We need to tap into that power every single day. We need to ask God to lead us by his spirit, fill us with his spirit, control us by his spirit, to overcome, you know, the attacks from Satan for sure. Mm-hmm. And Bob, I'm looking uh, through part three of your book, and I'm wondering if you always write this brilliantly or if this is your A material, because I could rename the book Bob Merritt's A material, because it's really, really good stuff. <laughs> and when you talk well, about... I- Less rebellion and more obedience, fewer possessions, more people, less selfishness, more sacrifice. You go on and on. It's so succinct. Well, so let me let me just pick up on one of those. Less obsession, more devotion is the final chapter in the book. I, uh, we all have interests in life. I, I like to golf. I like to hunt, like to fish. I like to bike and so forth. Those are those are hobbies and interests, but sometimes those things can become an obsession. If I become obsessed with deer hunting, which I am, by the way, okay. <laughs> yeah, my my wife will say in November there's 12 days in November uh, when the deer are in the rut. They're you know they're they're very active. She says all you little men lose your little minds, and I I I, I do. I lose my mind. I'm obsessed. I think about wind direction, deer movement. I think about where I'm going to be hunting and so forth. For 12 days, I am, a, I am an obsessed person. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, that, that creates tension in our marriage. And if, and, and, and if I would continue that throughout the year, I'm going to lose my marriage. And so what I talk about is it's okay to have habits and hobbies, but when something becomes an obsession, 
It begins to squeeze God, God out of my life. And so that's where I talk about, is there an obsession in your life that is actually squeezing God, squeezing the, the work of God's spirit out of your life and creating a, a, an emptiness, a void, a loss of power to overcome sin. So I talk about less obsession, more devotion to Jesus Christ who, you know, can set us free from, it, it's, I still hunt. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I still golf. But if anything takes the place of God in the center of my life, I'm going to lose. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it, maybe it was Augustine or somebody or Paul or somebody, I lose track what I learned sometimes, but it's not that you love bad things, but you love good things too much. Yeah. Now that becomes a disordered love. And then all of a sudden you've got something that's bigger than it should be occupying a place. It shouldn't be occupying. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, anything that occupies the space in my soul that belongs to God, uh, is really idolatry that that becomes my God. Mm-hmm. Anything that occupies occupies the space in my life that belongs to God is idolatry. And so if that happens, I become disordered in my soul. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Bob, how did you repair from this criticism, this 225-page document about what's wrong with Bob? And, and how did you weather these storms? How did you repair? How did you get yourself back on track? And then what advice can you give the rest of us? So you keep going back to this painful... I know. <laughs> mostly error. mostly because I'm shocked by it. I mean, honestly. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, going through this, I was so uh, uh, broken uh, during this two-day lockdown. It happened down in Lanesboro where this guy lived. Uh, the, the spread, my counselor and his, his staff. And I, at the end of it, I said, okay, I, I get it, Fred. I, I, I've got these issues in my life. I, I'm I'm I'm... I'm I get it. I said, what are my chances of overcoming these behaviors that have been so ingrained and so automatic in my life for 50-some years? What are my chances of overcoming this? Mm -hmm. He said about 40%. He said about 40% of the people who go through a a session like this, a year-long session, uh, are able to overcome. Now, he's talking about Christians and non-Christians. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said one word. He said humility. He said, if you are humble before God, if you bring this before God every single day, if you put it on project status, confess it when you, you know, confess your sin when you fail, because we're never going to be perfect, but hopefully there's progress. Confess it, be honest about it, and you know, day by day, it'll lose its grip on your life. And I can tell you that that's true. I'm, I'm still, I still fumble the ball. I still say things I shouldn't, but I can see progress in my life. But it really goes back to that word humility and honesty before God and confessing it to him every time it happens, asking forgiveness, going back to those you hurt, saying, will you forgive me? By the way, that gets old. I bet. When you, when you go back. When you have to go back time and time again and say, I'm so sorry, I screwed up again, will you forgive me? That gets tiring. And you get you get tired of having to do that. Mm-hmm. But the act of doing it helps you also gain, gain victory over it. Well, thank you for showing uh, this side of you. You're, you're a good man. Hey, I appreciate that, Bill. And I, off, I have really enjoyed uh, 
talking to you, and um, I appreciate the book. Well, I appreciate you and and what you're doing, and you know we're all we're in this all together. I couldn't um, agree more. Not, yep, none of us are perfect, but hopefully making progress. Yeah. So thank you, Bob Merritt's been my guest. His book is called "Done with That: Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life." Thanks again to Pastor Bob Merritt for making it such a great second hour. Appreciate his book, and thank you for uh, being so uh, so wise. That wraps up our show. Thanks for listening today. You know I love you, and you know I can't wait for our next time together. Have a great night, everyone. And when you lay your head on that pillow, just know that God's working on his great plan in your life. 